listening to this week's sermon from King's Community Church. For more information about our church, including meeting time and location, visit kingscommunity.ch. church. My name's Gabe. I get to be the lead pastor here at King's Community. I'm glad you're here with us this morning. Uh, It's a great opportunity to worship. Uh, Whether you've been with us for the last year or you're a newcomer, I am glad you're here. And if I haven't met you before, I'd love to get the opportunity to meet you before you leave here today. Uh, As Bonnie just suggested, this is a pretty special time of year because uh, tomorrow, in fact, marks the one-year birthday for our church. We started meeting. Yeah, you can celebrate that. And you should. Uh, it's one year of God's faithfulness in the church. Uh, I'm, I'm very grateful for what God has done, and we are going to celebrate that. Uh, but there's still so much left to be done that I think we're going to be a part of. Uh, so we're going to prepare for that as well. Uh, to, today is, is a, a day that we could celebrate uh, the, the birthday of the church, but I want to give you a couple more weeks uh, to break your own New Year's resolution um, before we help you break it. On January 26th, we're actually going to have a celebration. Uh, it's, we're going to have our typical worship gathering here at Morningside Elementary at 10 a.m., uh, and after that, we're going to have everything you would imagine having at a birthday party. There's going to be gifts, there's going to be food, there's going to be fun and celebration. Uh, I hope you'll prioritize that time because it's something we should celebrate. And this is about God's faithfulness. So mark that on your calendar, uh, and I I hope you'll be a part of that with us. Uh, For today, though, let me thank God for this last year and ask him to continue breathing life into this church so that we can bring God's story to life as we continue to go forward. Will you pray with me? Uh, Heavenly Father, uh, we recognize that life is a gift from you. It is not something we deserve. It is not something we've earned. Uh, It is merely an opportunity that you've given us. Lord, we thank you for the last year of life and ministry as a church. Lord, we thank you that you've given us uh, the, the beginnings of opportunities to see lives redeemed, families transformed, our communities blessed, and a vision for more churches planted. Lord, we pray that you would help us continue to keep the most important things in front of us, and let go of the other things. And Lord, we pray that you would lead us in every step. Uh, forgive us for when we fail, Lord. Um, prepare us for what you have ahead of us. We pray this in the good name of your son, Jesus. Amen. I don't know about you, um, but, but my wife and I used to be really obsessed with pretty much anything that came on HGTV. Until we bought a house, and then we just started comparing it to everything else. <laughs> so we had to reel it in a little bit. Um, but, but we would love all sorts of shows. My wife uh, had her types of shows, but I really liked the home renovation shows. And if you watched enough of the home renovation shows, inside of an hour, you could begin to see the pattern of what was going to happen in the show. The first 15 minutes of the show... You've got a really nice family with really nice goals. They've got reasonable projects to help improve the quality of their house. Someone steps in and says, in a really nice way, we'd love to help you do that. The first 15 minutes is golden. And then in the next 15 minutes, 
the contractors going through the house, starting to, to peel back the walls, and it's, it's just out of control. The project is so much bigger than anyone would have imagined. Things are bad. It's not just in the room that they were going to transform. It's throughout the whole house. The house might have even been built on a cemetery, and there's, ghosts. Like there's, there's insurmountable things that they're not going to be able to do inside the hour of this show. It gets bad. It gets uncomfortable. And they start the project. When they do that, uh, someone's got to go to the homeowner and say, this is actually going to take more money and time and resources than you have budgeted. It's always that tense conversation in the show. Then the next 15 minutes of the show, all the nice has gone out the door. Nobody's friends with anybody in the show. Nobody, nobody likes the person that told them they have problems. The, the husband and wife don't like each other. Everything's gone awry, and you start to wonder to yourself, are they going to even be able to finish this episode? Are they going to have to quit? Is this going to be a two-parter, even though it never is? In the last 15 minutes of the show, in some miraculous way, everything comes together. It all happened. It leaves you with smiling faces. Roll credits. There was one show that stood out to me, though. It's called Sweat Equity. The host of the show would not just illuminate the problems with the house. They would actually invite the homeowner to participate in changing what was going on and solving the problem. And that way it would save them money and it would give them practical skills as they went forward. It was a little bit different than the rest of the renovation shows. What does that mean for us today? Let me tell you, here's the gospel. Life was created to be good. That's good news for us. But if we're honest, your life and mine has problems. It's dirty. It leaks. There's wear and tear. It's been misused. And then as Christians, we've got this thing called the Bible that enters our lives, and it tells us the conditions are actually worse than that. You've actually built your life on the wrong foundation. You've built your life on the wrong foundation, and the damages are irreparable. We chase things that don't satisfy us. We do things that God doesn't approve of. Some things have been done to us that we know aren't right. We get hurt by people. We hurt other people. The word gospel means good news. That doesn't sound like very good news for us, but here's the good news. In spite of what we've done or what's been done to us, Jesus came to rebuild our lives on a good foundation. And that foundation is himself. He's the good foundation of life that we need. He's willing to renovate our whole lives so that we can enjoy a good life with him for all of eternity. Even beyond that, he's willing to pay the bill for the entire renovation. And he invites us to participate in the work of transformation in the meantime. Isn't that amazing? That the God who can solve our problems not only chooses to, but he invites us to participate in the transformation because he knows that's what is good for us. There's a big Christian word called sanctification, and I know none of you got up early to hear words that I know. Uh, that would be a really lousy reason to get up early on a Sunday morning, but sanctification is an important word. Sanctification is a word that I want you to understand the meaning of. 
At its core, sanctification is the idea of being transformed or changed into the image of Jesus. And that's God's good desire for us because Jesus is pleasing to God. Life transformation doesn't happen accidentally or haphazardly. It happens when we begin walking with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, spending more time with Jesus in the everyday stuff of life, learning from Jesus, allowing what Jesus taught and how Jesus lived to seep into every dimension of life. Sanctification or life transformation is joining God's work of being changed into the image of Jesus. So it's good for us to understand what that means and what that looks like. Our lives are under construction. And that's what we're going to talk about for the next several weeks, what it means to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Jesus has paid for our renovation, but he invites us to participate in the work of life transformation. Why? So that we can begin experiencing more and more of the life that God has for us, more and more of this life that God said was intended to be good. He promised the beginning involves humbly submitting our lives to him. That is very powerful because sometimes we get lost in the idea that that the goodness that God has for us is just in the distant future in this place we call heaven. But Jesus has offered us so much more than that. He wants heaven to invade the present so that we can begin enjoying God now. We get to participate in that work, which begs the question, where do we begin? How do I start getting that in my everyday life? And it all hinges on the idea that God is currently changing our hearts. Hearts is a cryptic word that can mean different things to different people, but we want to understand how it's meant in the Bible when it's talked about the heart It's talked about our motivation for living, the insides, why we do what we do. God wants to change that about us so that we can begin experiencing new life with him. That's the basis of every other change that will happen in our lives. Heart transformation starts with being humbly submitted to God. That's where it all begins. Jesus was a controversial character. Towards the end of his ministry, he was almost like a fugitive. There were religious leaders that that just wanted to put an end to what he was saying and doing. So towards the end of of Jesus' about three-year ministry, he went away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place where it was like the center of Jewishness, where all the leaders were. He moved away from that. He went farther north than he had ever gone in his three years of ministry. And there was a smaller crowd that followed him there because of the distance. And he did that because he was a fugitive. His life was literally at risk because of what he was teaching and doing. While he was there, before the cross, Jesus talked to his followers. He talked to his disciples. And he wanted to share with them more about the nature of who he is and what he's doing. While he was with the disciples, he told them more about himself. He told them more about his plan. And he told them more about their purpose in the midst of all that. You can see this for yourself in Mark chapter 8 in the New Testament. Jesus talks to them about his self, his plan, and their purpose in the midst of it. When Jesus talks to them about himself in Mark chapter 8, he makes it explicitly clear that he is the Messiah, 
that he is the Christ. That's an important term in the Bible because that's what people were waiting for throughout all of human history. So when we say Jesus Christ, believe it or not, Christ is not his last name. It's who he is. That was supposed to be funny. Jesus Christ means Jesus Messiah. That's important because the Messiah is the Savior of the world. He is the one who is able to bring people back into the presence of God. That's what he tells his disciples. And then he tells them the plan for how he's going to bring people back to God. And the plan, get this, the plan for God, the Savior of the world, he tells them. It's like, all I have to do is suffer and then die and then resurrect. And believe it or not, 2,000 years ago, that didn't sound any more normal than it sounds right now. Jesus is standing before his disciples. He tells them who he is. So you can imagine they're sitting on the edge of their seats when he's explaining what his plan is going to be. Is it going to be big? What's it going to look like? Is it going to be a war? Or are you just going to speak things back into rightness with you? How's it going to work? Are we all going to get houses and cars? That was a really interesting question because 2,000 years ago there weren't cars. We all have an image of what it looks like for God to make things better in our lives. So did they. And he said how it's going to happen is I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. And they were confused. You've never watched a a sports movie and at halftime of the big game, the coach calls everyone into the locker room and says, come around closer. Here's what we're going to do. Give the ball away the whole second half. That's not that motivational speech, but that's what the disciples were expecting to hear was a motivational speech. And Jesus told them the kingdom being ushered in isn't going to look like you trying harder the second half. It's going to look like death. They were confused. And Peter, one of Jesus' closest friends and followers, didn't like what he was hearing. And he told Jesus no in Mark chapter 8. It can't be this way. That's not the plan for success. And Jesus tells Peter, In verse 33, he tells Peter, you're not thinking about God's concerns, but humans' concerns. We want God to fix our stuff our way, but we have such a limited mindset of what that looks like. And after Jesus rebukes, he he corrects Peter, his friend, in the midst of all the following disciples. This is what Jesus says tells him about their purpose in following God, God's way. In Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 34, calling the crowd along with his disciples, Jesus said to them, if anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me and the gospel will save it. For what does it benefit someone to gain the whole world but yet lose his life? What can anyone give in exchange for his life? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Jesus is explaining to his disciples the cost of discipleship. While Jesus is going to pay for the renovation of their souls, he's inviting them to participate in the work. But that's going to come at a cost. In life, there are two different paths. Anyone who's walked on paths knows that you can't walk on two paths at the same time. You're going to have to choose one and give up the other one. So what does it mean for them to choose to follow Jesus? He tells them pretty explicitly, self-denial, take up your cross, which was the worst, most shameful punishment that always resulted in death. Do that, lose your life, and follow Jesus. Jesus is explaining that in order to follow him, there has to be a death involved. That was a little bit more understandable for his original audience than it is for us. When we hear that, that's jarring. But when they thought about worship in the first century Near East, death was a part of the worship experience. They would have birds and goats and calves at their worship gatherings like this. And because of sin, there were various reasons that they would bring them into the worship gathering and slaughter them and then take these branches called hyssop, dip it into the blood, and, and as a representation of the blood of this sacrifice covering the debt of their sins, he would kind of spray it on them. I've watched some of y'all get squirmy because we have kids in the beginning of our worship gatherings. They had goats being slaughtered. Anytime you walk in here and you don't see livestock and tarps, you should be happy that it's going to be a pretty reasonable morning. But this crowd understood death in worship. They were accustomed to things dying for people to be able to worship and be in right standing with God. They were accustomed to that. So when Jesus gave this message, it meant something deeply to them. Because he was saying, if you want to build your life on the right foundation, something's got to die. And what did he tell them had to die? They did. That's revolutionary. That's difficult to understand. But that's exactly what Jesus taught. There's no bait and switch with him. There's not a savvy sales pitch promising health, wealth, and fame. If you want to follow, you'll have to lose your life. Sometimes, 2,000 years later, in a culture like ours, that message gets twisted and perverted, and we get different motives, different hearts for following Jesus. And we come across a passage like this in Mark chapter 8, and we think to ourselves, did Jesus really say that? And we see they're his words to his followers. You have, to, you have to deny yourself, take up your cross, lose your life, and follow Jesus. I think there are three lies that tempt us away from following Jesus the way that he calls us to. There are three lies that I, I want to shine a spotlight on today. The first one is something that, that we'd call hedonism. Hedonism is, is the idea that you always do what feels good. The pursuit of pleasure 
is the meaning of a good life. Some of us believe the idea that the, the first part of the gospel that is always true, God desires us to have a good and pleasing life. We take that and twist that and put it into our own terms. And we believe the pursuit of pleasure, the pursuit of temporal pleasure in this life is the absolute best way to live. It's called a hedonistic lifestyle. Then there's the other end of the spectrum that I think is also a lie. It's what we would call an ascetic lifestyle. If hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, asceticism is the complete denial of pleasure. Some of us think the best life we can live is to deny every pleasure that we could experience and that will make us holy and able to stand before God and be righteous because we deny those earthly pleasures that the, the hedonistic people surrender themselves to. Hedonism and asceticism are, are flip sides of the same coin. All pleasure, no pain. All pain, no pleasure. I think those are lies that some of us believe can, can lead us to a good life. But the third one is the subtle killer. And I think it actually permeates our culture more than we know. The third lie that we believe that inhibits us from following Jesus the way he's called us to is the lie that balance is what leads to a good life. The idea that all we need to do is pursue balance. And in some way, we can manage pleasure and pain the right way. And if we can just have enough pleasure and, and enough pain that we can deny ourselves some things but justify other things in our life, that we can stand right before God. What we ultimately want to do in seeking a life of balance is be the judge of our own lives and assume that if our good outweighs our bad, then we've got balance and therefore we deserve to be right with God. My problem with the subtle danger of believing balance is what leads to the good life is that us, not Jesus, is in control. Think for a moment. Balanced things don't move. If you're trying to balance something, you're trying to be as still as possible. Balance doesn't grow and it doesn't go. Following Jesus means transformation and movement in this life. And if we're just trying to hinge our lives on the right balance, we won't experience transformation and we won't engage in the movement. The problem with hedonism, asceticism, and balance is that our pleasure is at the center of that view of life. If getting our desires isn't good for us and rejecting our desires isn't good for us and balancing our desires isn't good for us, what on earth is good for us? Jesus is explaining in this passage when he's talking about self-denial, taking up your cross, losing your life and following him, that we need new desires. We don't need a better version of our old self. We need new desires. We need new hearts. We need new motivations for living all together. Jesus told the crowds, whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but ever, whoever loses his life because of me and because of the gospel will save it. God, through Jesus, is telling us the self-centered worldview that pursues pleasure or pain or balance 
isn't the worldview that's going to allow us to walk with Jesus. We need a new worldview. We need a Jesus-centered worldview, or what we might call a gospel-centered worldview. The word they used for life had layers of meaning. In, in, the, in the first century AD, in Greek, the language that this was written in, life had layers of meaning. It could mean their physical life. It could also mean their, their transcendent soul that goes on beyond this life. And Jesus is using this word interchangeably. He's saying, you are so focused on the physical life that you're denying your soul. You need to be willing to give up this, this limited, this temporal thing in order to gain something so much greater. God doesn't just want to take our lives from us. He wants to receive humbly submitted lives and transform them into something better. Jesus says that happens when you humbly submit to me. We need to understand that we can't be short-sighted. Jesus meant that if a person wants to keep control of his or her life now, they're going to suffer the loss of something much more valuable in the future. But if we're willing to surrender control of our lives to follow God's will faithfully, we will gain something of great worth. That takes tremendous trust and belief. You will never be desperate for God and his kind of life until you have come to the end of thinking and living as if you can make it work yourself. Let me, let me say that again for you. You will never be desperate for God and his kind of life until you have come to the end of thinking and living as if you can make life work yourself. Jesus isn't just extending an invitation to make life better. He's inviting us to experience new life and true life. That's a life that can't be lost or stolen. It's eternal life. God isn't opposed to pleasure. God is committed to a far greater pleasure than we can imagine without his presence in our lives. A pleasure that can only be found with him. So Jesus is saying to them, lose your life, but take mine. Humbly submitting to Jesus, self-denial, taking up your cross, losing your life isn't the end of pleasure. It's the beginning of a newer and far greater pleasure than we can imagine. So how do we tap into that? Jesus said the plan was we tap into that through his death and resurrection. Jesus gave his life for us, but it didn't end there. The gospel says Jesus gave his life to us. Sometimes we hinge this idea of Christianity on Jesus gave his life for us, and someday we'll get this thing called heaven, but then we miss God in that great in-between. Jesus gave his life for us, but he also gave his life to us in order that we can start enjoying God now. Following Jesus doesn't mean removing our desires. It means replacing them with better desires. God's desires for us. Desires that can actually satisfy us. Self-denial means stop being passionately committed to you so that you can be humbly submitted to God. The new life, the new heart, the new desire means a new motivation for living. It means we're no longer led by pleasure or the absence of pleasure. 
We're no longer led by balance in this life. Instead, we begin asking ourselves a better question. What does the gospel compel me to do? I believe if most of us ask that question more throughout our days, it would begin to revolutionize the way we think and eventually the way we believe and live. What does the gospel compel me to do? If we ask that question, what does the gospel compel me to do? What path leads to a closer walk with Jesus? Then it changes everything we think about. Let's go through some examples. The idea of sex. Sex You're not supposed to talk about sex in church. We're going to talk about sex for a second. Hedonism says sex is the relentless pursuit of pleasure. Get it any way you want, any way you need. Have that. That's for you. It's a gift. Asceticism says withhold all pleasure. So so don't pursue sex. This causes a lot of confusion, even in Christian marriages. Is it about pleasure or is it about denial? Or is it about balance? And some people get caught up in this trap with this awful, destructive tool called pornography. And they allow their thoughts to go toward pleasure, but they don't want to act on that behavior. So in in dark places, they pursue pornography, and they treat that as a balance. At least I'm not doing that other thing. It's not about the relentless pursuit of pleasure. It's not about denial. It's not about balance when we begin asking ourselves the right question, humbly submitted to Jesus, when we approach sex, we ask the question, what does the gospel compel me to do? And it changes the way we think and the way we live. Think about money. Is money good or bad? Neither. But some people pursue money like it's the greatest end of mankind, and and more of it is what leads to a good life. Other people deny money. They treat it like a necessary evil and just misunderstand the whole concept of money, thinking it's a bad thing. They'll even misquote scripture to think money is the root of all evil when, when Jesus actually said the love for money is the root of all evil. So is money about pleasure or denial or is it about balance? If I just give and save and spend the right way, then I'll be holy before God. No, we should ask ourselves, what does the gospel compel me to do with my income? That revolutionizes the question. What causes me to live by greater faith? What brings God more glory? What blesses other people? Different question leads to different result. Food and drink, another sensitive subject in Christian subculture. How should we treat food and drink? Should we embrace it and just pursue it in every dimension of life? Should we deny ourselves any pleasure with food and drink? Should we just have a balanced diet with the right amount of cheap meals? No, it's a different question. What does the gospel compel me to do? Am I chasing food to give me some feeling that I can only find in satisfaction in God? Am I denying these wonderful things like like taste buds and and time with people because I've idolized food and said I need to remove any pleasure from food or do I just need a balanced diet to be holy? All of those are wrong. How does the gospel compel you to eat and drink? That may manifest itself in different ways in our lives. It may look different for some people as we're following Jesus. And I believe that's okay. We can apply the same principles to work and rest and entertainment in our physical bodies. If we ask ourselves the question, how does the gospel compel me to live? 
It changes the way we think. But what it demands is that we have a better understanding of the gospel and a better understanding of ourselves. Some of us sell that short, and we don't experience life transformation because we ask ourselves the question, how does the gospel compel me to live? But we don't know what the gospel is. The gospel is the idea that, that we were created to enjoy God and make him known in all of our days. But we've been rebels. We've rebelled against God. It's this thing we call sin. And it's led us on a path of brokenness and darkness and hurt and pain. But in spite of ourselves, God has been in a relentless pursuit of us to give us a new foundation for living. And he promises us that when we believe and trust and follow, that can revolutionize everything about our lives. So what happens then when we ask ourselves the question, does this draw me closer to Jesus or distance me from him? Because there are only two paths. Better questions lead to life transformation. Christianity gets a bad rap as a thoughtless religion. I believe that that Christianity hinges on relationship with God, following Jesus, and we should be deeply thoughtful people. We should be thinking in the everyday stuff of life, what does it mean if Jesus is the Savior King for me to follow him? How then should I live? And we need to be ready to share that with other people who see us living differently and ask questions. When we live differently for the glory of God because that's our new motivation, it will prime us for opportunities to share God's glory with other people. But it hinges on knowing the gospel and knowing yourself. When you answer that question, how does the gospel compel me to live, remember Jesus' words in Mark chapter 8, there will be a death involved. That sounds terrible. (laughs) That sounds awful. Unless you know who Jesus is. Because Jesus has just explained that his plan isn't just about death, it's about resurrection. He's explaining to this crowd that he's in the business of bringing dead things to life. When you sacrifice your desires, he's going to bring to life new desires. Don't get me wrong. The the idea of resurrection sounded strange 2,000 years ago, but it's Jesus' promise. It was absurd to people then, just like it might be absurd to you right now, but what Jesus says he can do isn't crazy if Jesus is who he says he is. What Jesus said he can do for us is no longer crazy if Jesus is who he says he is. What Jesus is is telling this crowd reminds me of of the way my friend Dave lives. He was one of my best friends when I lived in Pennsylvania. Uh, Anytime I talk to Dave, uh, there's a really good chance that he just bought something old and broken. That's his hobby, buying old and broken things. Uh, Even when we lived in in closer proximity, he bought an epic workbench that just looked beyond repair, uh, and and he renovated it. He buys so many motorcycles that are old and broken. Uh, He bought a snowmobile, go-karts, a pinball machine. This dude even buys old versions of classic books because he likes to see new life breathed into them. That's just his M.O., 
He buys old, broken things. But then he restores them and makes them better than new. The sweet thing about Dave is he doesn't just collect these things and put them in his garage or place them on his mantle to look at them. When he restores something, he's going to use that thing. He's going to enjoy that thing. He gets more joy from riding a motorcycle that he's restored than he would from buying a new bike. In a similar fashion on a larger scale, God has extended an invitation to purchase you. The word for that in the Bible is redeem. God said he's going to redeem us. Redeem literally means to buy back, never to be sold again. Unfortunately for us, building our life on the wrong foundation requires a debt of blood, and we owe more than we can afford. But Jesus said, I want to buy you back. And he doesn't just want to buy us. He wants to restore us and renew us. He's willing to pay the full price. And he's just explained to his disciples that that's the plan. Church, belief in the resurrection requires tremendous faith. And that's how you participate in life transformation. Saved by grace, through faith, transformed into the image of Jesus. By faith, we humbly submit ourselves to God, and we are like old, broken tools and instruments, and God loves the broken ones because his glory is on display when he's able to renew them. God saves us as we are, but God doesn't leave us as we are. He wants to transform us and use us. Some of you might feel broken beyond repair. Some of you might have a dimension of life that seems too broken to be restored, a marriage, a relationship, some habit, hurt, or hang-up that you can't seem to quit. But I assure you, Jesus is on a mission to find us, redeem us, restore us, and use us. And there is no brokenness that is beyond God's reach of redemption. One more word I want you to look at in the passage we just read. Anybody, if anybody wants to follow me, he says. Anybody. And he doesn't say, clean yourself up and come to me. He says, anybody, humbly submit and follow me. If you've been redeemed and you're being restored, I assure you God wants to use what he's done in your life in the lives of others. This week, I, I want you to think about just one dimension of your life. Maybe it's a dimension of life where you've never thought of God entering into and transforming. It, it could be a hobby. It could be your family. It could be your workplace. It could be a relationship. What is a dimension of your life that you've not humbly submitted to God to? And I want you to begin asking yourself the question throughout the day. You might not even have answers at first. Ask yourself the question throughout the day, what does the gospel compel me to do in this dimension of life? Keep asking, keep praying, keep waiting, and see if God transforms you or the relationships that you're in. 
What does the gospel compel me to do with this part of my life? What decision can I make that will cause me to have greater faith in Jesus? How can I humbly submit this part of my life to him? See if God begins to transform you. He might even want to use that so that you can be a part of transforming someone else. Ultimately, I believe God is going to do something significant when we work with him, when we participate in the work that he started with us. I believe he's going to change all different parts of our life, our families, and even our community, but it begins with humble submission. The whole world that we're in is under construction. But God promised, I came to make all things new. And he's invited you to participate in that. The choice is yours. Let me pray for us that that we would have open eyes and ears and minds to humbly submit ourselves to Jesus. Heavenly Father, it's humbling to think that you would invite us to participate in the work of transformation. Lord, as we read these words of Jesus explaining to his disciples who he is, his plan to die and resurrect, and our purpose, Lord, would you give us the faith that we need to follow him? Will you give us the courage to ask that question, what does the gospel compel me to do and respond accordingly? Will you give us eyes to see and ears to hear how you want to transform our lives? And Lord, will you help us to participate in the work of life transformation? Thank you for the love that you've shown us through Jesus. Thank you for the hope of resurrection and making all things new. Lord, lead us with your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you.